Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. Huge shout out to our sponsor, Reserve. Uh, if you don't know Reserve, we're going to talk more about them later in the show. Uh, but Reserve is the easiest way to design, deploy, and govern stable coins backed by a diverse set of assets with access to DeFi yield and insurance. Super interesting. Uh, very excited to partner with Reserve. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Should we get into it? Let's get into Let's it. Let's do it. All right. See you on the other side. Welcome to another episode of Bell Curve. I've got Shreyas Hariharan and Mika Hunkasalo. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Great to be here. Guys, uh, we're missing Jason on this one. He said he was so intimidated by your intellectual prowess and capability. He actually couldn't with No, uh, Porgy, he woke up with a, uh, without his voice. So we're going to do our best to, to soldier on without him today. Um, we've got a great, great episode for everyone. Uh, we've got a lot, uh, frankly, to unpack. And I'd love to, to get into as much of it as we have time for. Um, Shreyas, I actually want to turn this over to you. You, you have this great analogy of, uh, you know, kind of Kosis theorem, right. And kind of this, this theory of the firm and how that might translate into the new world of Dow. So yeah, I, I saw you gave a talk at Mainnet. Can you kind of just unpack, um, you know, your, your ideas there? Yeah, for sure. So the, the basic, uh, idea that Ronald Coase, who was an economist in the, in the 1930s, um, worked on is, is the, the theory of the firm which is he asked this question of why does the firm exist? Uh, why can't um, individuals, say at Ford Motor Company, whether it's the engineers or the uh, designers or the, um, the executives just work as independent freelancers and why do they have to come together as a firm to sell their services? Um, and the reason is because firms reduce transaction costs. And so uh, firms actually, you know, there's, there's a lot of costs incurred when individuals um, uh, sell their services independently in, in the free market. And uh, specifically, there's three types of costs. Uh, you know, one is uh, triangulation, which is finding and measuring the quality of a service. Uh, the second is uh, um, uh, transfer, which is it, it costs a lot to bargain and negotiate for a specific service. And so if you have an individual every day who is um, uh, trying to negotiate how much uh, they're supposed to get paid and what the contract should be, that would be uh, quite costly. And lastly, trust, which is uh, the party may not be trustworthy and, you know, you can have um, uh, you know, usually you have the legal system that, uh, comes as a, you know, last, uh, sort of option of recourse, but legal system itself is, is expensive. And so firms really help uh, reduce these transaction costs, which is why individuals work at firms. Um, and then the internet has helped reduce, um, uh, transaction costs significantly. And so, uh, you know, by individuals being able to directly work, uh, for, you know, services, uh, that other individuals demand. Um, you know, it's, it's reduced transaction costs. So for, for one example would be, um, Uber where, you know, uh, drivers are, um, able to, you know, sell their services and find riders. And of course you have the app that mediates that, but that's very different from having a taxi medallion that, that mediates it. Um, and then you know, same with Airbnb, uh, same with other like gig economy type freelance or design services. Uh, and so this, uh, you know, uh, DAOs are, or, or, or blockchains are in that, you know, wave of helping reduce coordination costs where you have this, um, you have this system, you know, you, you, uh, you have kind of Ethereum, let's say that, uh, really helps, um, have those property, those nation state type properties of contract enforcement that can help, you know, people from around the world, whether it's, uh, you know, from different countries or. In some cases, anonymous people already trust each other. And then you have, um, uh, these individuals that can, you know, sell their services directly, uh, because they have some shared, uh, you know, level of, uh, sort of contract enforcement or trust that, you know, mediates that. Um, and yeah, my argument in that, uh, uh, post was that, um, while transaction costs have, have reduced, there reaches a point where, you know, individuals, and we're seeing this with contributing to protocols where it, it is hard for individuals to contribute to protocols directly because, um, it, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of cost involved in, uh, coordinating sort of, you know, sort of different skill sets, whether it's smart contract engineering or, or governance work is bargaining power and even like passing a governance proposal. And so, you know, there, there are DAOs, these collectives that come together to even contribute to protocols that, you know, make, make the, um, the contribution even more, uh, effective and, and impactful. And so. Uh, the idea is that it's almost like you've had this, um, unbundling of, um, of, um, uh, you know, labor, and then now you're kind of having a rebundling, but that's emerging more slowly. 
uh, through DAOs and, and especially DAOs that, that contribute to protocols. Yeah, it's it's funny to to look at DAOs through the lens of COS, right? The COS's theorem, because if you look at a company and the aim of reducing transaction costs, you know, you look at something like trust, like, hey, you don't, you both work here, so you trust, right? Uh, tri- triangulation, right? You don't have to go out and find a service like it's uh, the guy sitting next to you or the San Francisco officer or whatever. So you can see very through, you know, kind of traditional corporations in America, how they've uh, improved, you know, efficiency through basically just this kind of top-down, hierarchical, rigid organization. Maybe the next evolution of that is the internet, where you're not all necessarily working for the same firm, but like Uber drivers, right, as an example of like, okay, we're both on this app, and we don't necessarily need to trust each other, I can very easily find you. You know, when when you look at DAOs, and Shreyas, I know you're sort of talking about this specific subset, contributor DAOs in your talk, but it was interesting to look at it through this lens, because I think in some instances, it's almost like we're going one step back, right, for a COSIS theorem. Because even if you look at a lot of these DAOs that are trying to now recruit services, um, it's like, hey, let's just RFP out every single minor service, right, in some instances. And that just seems to create a lot of, like, friction. So I guess, uh, Mika, you know, maybe as a, as a kind of avid DAO contributor, maybe you could address um, some of that point and how you see all this. I do think that, like, in crypto, sometimes there is this thing, are we building something new or are we, like, building existing things over again? on the internet and and when it comes to like how to set up working organizations towards like building actually some useful product or service uh i think the baseline is sort of we do start from a reset in a way and that's where like a lot of this comes from and people are sort of discovering a lot like okay how should we like set set up like this organization and how do we accomplish this goal uh, i think in practice like for example i've been like a delegate on MakerDAO. And the sort of least impressive part of MakerDAO is probably the DAO part uh, in terms of how well it sort of organizes itself. So the, there is like a lot of skepticism around around that. But I, I, I think it's more of a like a process question where we, we reset and we get to like try these things in a global and sort of pseudonymous way and and or potentially at least it's sort of up to the market to decide. And, uh, and that's sort of what opens up, like, I think the kind of cool stuff and, and eventually like leads to better outcomes, but it's just within like working in that environment, it just looks a bit more hectic uh, on a day-to-day basis. You know, a question that I put to you guys is, um, you know, I, I sort of, it seems to me sometimes I hear DAOs get talked about in two different ways, right? Which is one, we are going to sort of reinvent the theory of what the firm should look like, right? And in general, not it obviously differs on a, on a DAO-to-DAO type basis, but in general, we want something that looks less like a hierarch- rigid hierarchical structure. We want a flat organization, something that looks more like a democratic form of governance internally, right? Where, you know, uh, contributors get more of a voice than necessarily just top-down management. On the other hand, uh, Shreya, some, I, I was kind of struck by listening to your talk and description of DAOs. In a lot of ways, it's almost the continuation of many trends that we currently see, right? Like the gig economy, uh, like, first of all, like a global uh, employee and contributor base, right? Everything kind of takes place online. Um, so I guess like those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive ideas, but in order for, let's say like protocol DAOs or contributor DAOs, uh, as opposed to, I guess you'd call Bitcoin or Ethereum a DAO, but like, let's sp- focus specifically on, you know, hyperstructure protocol type DAOs. Do you think we need to like totally tear everything up at the roots and, and reinvent it? Can governance actually be this governance that we're experimenting with that be an advantage? Or do you see it kind of as the natural continuation of trends that are already occurring in, let's say, the tech industry? Yeah, I think there's always a combination of both. I think uh, the so, so the unique things that um, you know blockchains and crypto enable. One is that you take a simple thing that anyone can create an Ethereum address. Um, and anyone can create uh, multiple or several hundred Ethereum addresses. That's a very unique property of, of blockchains that we could ha- you could have these you know hundreds of pseudonymous identities. Each of them could be uh, transacting, contributing to different protocols, engaging with uh, different protocols as, as a user. And it's just so different from a real uh, identity in a in a nation state uh, where you have one identity linked to one person. And so yeah, I just picked that as one example of something that is distinct about blockchain. So you can, you can have, um, I think you, you, like many DAOs need to have more elements of, of corporate governance, uh, especially things on maybe like an, like the, the idea of an independent board that reviews the compensation of a CEO, like that's a useful idea. Um, but, uh, but then you have these unique elements, which is anyone can contribute to a DAO. Uh, in some cases you have, um, several pseudonymous contributors who don't know each other. In some cases you don't know, you know, who, who they are. 
you can also, um, uh, I think you, you kind of have to lean into the fact that, and that, you know, the, the DAO native way of contributing is, is different in the sense that there is more churn in the contributors. And so you have, um, someone who contributes for a few months in one protocol, you know, contributes uh, to another protocol for a few months. And so I think, um, yeah, you, you always want a combination of both. So, I, I mean, to summarize, I would say, um, you need, so let's take Aave as an example. So, you know, Aave is a, is a lending protocol. Aave, I would say has like maybe one of the more functional, like, you know, DeFi DAOs that, that exist today. Um, and, uh, so there's a, there's a core protocol that is built by Aave companies that is, um, you know, the, the liquidity protocol that, um, all the users use. And that be builds V1, V2, V3, does the major innovations on, you know, what the protocol needs. Uh, and then you have this large surface area for governance and for the DAO. Um, and so that surface area includes, uh, risk parameter updates, um, uh, asset listings, what assets should be listed on Aave, uh, treasury allocations, how the, how the treasury should be allocated. Um, the safety module, which is Aave has this insurance fund and how the insurance fund needs to be adjusted to reflect the, the growing needs of the protocol. Um, uh, grants and like sort of funding incentives, uh, for, uh, um, people to, you know, build on top of Aave. And so there are these host of functions that the Aave, uh, sort of companies and the centralized team is not working on that clearly the DAO is, is doing. And there's some things that can happen in a sub DAO model. So like, you know, uh, it's almost like a unit of the DAO and so Aave, um, grants DAO functions like that, but there's some things that is just much better as a service provider. So you have, um, say, uh, you know, Gauntlet or, um, or Llama or Chaos Labs that, that serve Aave DAO with specific, uh, services. And it, it, it's just way better because they compound, uh, it, you know, expertise from working across several DAOs to provide Aave with a, with a useful service. So I think you kind of need a, a combination of different things. And, and I, I think the, yeah, the unique thing that, that DAOs enable is that anyone can theoretically contribute. Um, but the, like, like I've found out before, there are some, uh, constraints on that, it, like these things that, you know, anyone can theoretically, um, say like, you know, get a government contract or something. Right. But, but in reality, there's, there's a lot of constraints that prevent people from, from doing that. And we need to ease that, that access better, but also make sure the, the quality of, of the work and, and contributions remain high. It depends a lot. I think also on the task at hand. That's being performed. What kind of DAO structure is good? Because you think like Ethereum is kind of like this big ship. If there would be like sort of real governance decision making in that, I don't think that like creates an optimal outcome actually. And and like it's better than. And also people, I think like just generally in an informal way agree what the roadmap should be. And let's just work like very uh, deliberately toward that. There's something like Uniswap as well. It it just it's like a. It's kind of like an order book and you just trade on there and doesn't actually need that much stuff. But like the Aave example explained here and like the maker one, you like, I would let rather let computers do everything. Right. But as long as they can't, like you need a human, human kind of doing those parameter updates. And that's where you kind of need governance because the task is more complex than like matching orders in a way, like actually setting interest rates and things like that is not like a trivial task, even in maker, you actually need someone to do it. And I think like also an underestimated part is that people do have an opportunity to contribute anonymously or pseudonymously to, to like these projects. Uh, there is like, this, I think a lack of like really, really high end like work always. And, and if you're able to do that, I think you're always able to make your way to like the top of, or like to a, an important place in terms of like working on like Aave interest rates or something like that, because uh, like it's such a, such so few people actually do that very well. So. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I really like that point because Ethereum is a great example of, uh, yeah, you don't need on-chain governance for everything. Ethereum functions, uh, well, and there's governance is basically, uh, decision-making and it's, it's almost, I view it as like, uh, you know, blockchains and DAOs. It's like an extension of, of social networks, which is social networks have people maybe communicate with each other. But, but the point of, of maybe DAO governance is that you, you combine that communication with, um, real coordination and decision-making power where, where there's the structures that people can make decisions and the structures need not be sort of, uh, on-chain, uh, governance or, or token holder or voting, right. They could, they could really differ based on what the needs of the protocol are. And, um, uh, and yeah, and, and, and also even within the on-chain governance, uh, realm, yeah, Uniswap is, is much more a hyperstructure that has just, uh, you know, a need for governance for the fee switch and treasury, treasury allocation. 
versus Avi has, you know, a, a, a much bigger mandate because of the sort of risk side. You know, we've talked about that, uh, kind of this idea, you know, even in past episodes, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with Hasu and Chris in, in episode one of this season, uh, this kind of idea that there are different governance structures that are appropriate for different uh, layers, let's say, of, of like how, however close some, a protocol is to kind of, let's call it the base infrastructure layer of crypto, right? So let's say for something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, like governance, because there is some governance, right? There are EIPs, right? Like we implemented EIP 1559 this year. That was very, there, there are changes that are being made there, right? And there's ultimately like, to your point, there's a roadmap that's being aligned on, but it's kind of this big, it's this big barge, right? That's very hard to to move uh, in one direction or another. And that's probably more of a feature than a bug. Then you could kind of go one layer up, right? And then maybe there's something like an Aave or Compound or Maker. Those are like very base layer infrastructure things. And then you can kind of go all the way up the stack to more consumer facing applications. So what are your sort of thoughts on different governance structures that are appropriate? Do you think it should be kind of you know, bigger and more democratic at the base, the infrastructure layer, so things are harder to to make quick changes to, and maybe more nimble at the top. Or how would you think about uh, you know prescribing different types of governance to different parts of the stack? I like a very like clear separation where uh, if you have things that need to be done, that that part I think should be done like by people who are really invested and aligned with the project. And if you and then like the base layer infrastructure, uh, like especially over time. Uh, things like Aave and Maker more and more uh, will re reach that kind of Ethereum status to me where I just think of them as like kind of like natural monopolies uh, that can form uh, very well and that's and they're kind of like like the big energy companies that are almost nationalized by nation states and things like that 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 to me is an analogy and the way that they sort of the business operates like so in some of those cases, like at Ethereum at end state is kind of like a business that any idiot can in a way operate because it just runs and makes money forever. It's like digging oil from the ground, you know, it doesn't like at that point when you reach that sort of real level of maturation, I think it looks like that, like as a business. So in in that sense, I don't think it needs to be like touched anymore. The same way like the core internet protocols don't get to like email doesn't really like get touched in that way. Uh, so I think like there you really want to over time reach that. And then when you're doing something very specific, that's where it helps to be like much more concentrated. But also like you can think all the organizations on top of Ethereum are kind of like sub DAOs of that in a way, because they're building, using that infrastructure, building their own thing, utilizing and taking advantage of like Ethereum's properties. They just like have their own governance model on top and like their own like sort of rent and value extraction. But like, it's just, uh, yeah, the first, like the high, the more consumer facing you are and the more nimble you have to be, the more you are less of a DAO. And then over time, I think all DAOs sort of should get dissolved in a way where it just runs on pure math, the whole thing. I'm going to make a, maybe a weird analogy here that might be a bit of a reach, but, but sort of bear with me. Um, you know, one, one big topic, especially like, let's say in the, in the case of something like Lido, uh, an advantage that DAOs can do that other, it would have been more, much more difficult to do in the real world is to ossify certain things in code, right? Make it immutable so that you can't necessarily change it. Um, if you think about it, like, if you think about the governance of the United States, right, what we basically did, we kind of like forked different ideas in the past, right? There was like the Magna Carta, right, which was kind of Commonwealth law in the UK and the Republican sort of structure back in ancient Rome. And we took a bunch of that and we created this thing called the Constitution. And then we sort of ossified it. We made it like very difficult to change what that ultimately is, right? You, you can do it if you get a super majority. We added Bill of Rights and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we almost like enshrined this thing right at the beginning of the United States. And I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with this kind of idea that ultimately like property law, like strong property law enforced by the state is a huge determinant for what ultimately makes something successful or or not. Um but I, I kind of believe that, right? Like, because build a company in the United States as opposed to other countries, because we know that the government isn't necessarily going to come in here and, and take it all, right? There's that, there's that kind of certainty. So I'd be curious how good of a job you think DAOs right now are doing at creating that, that same sense of certainty, right? There are a couple of examples where that hasn't necessarily been the case, but um, if you call Ethereum a DAO, I think they've done a pretty good job of that, but I'd be curious about some of the other DAOs, like how immutable uh, that the state that they're creating, how, how do you have, what good of a job do you think they're doing? 
Yeah, I think the um, that analogy of the of the constitution uh, should maybe apply to the to the blockchain to, to layer one blockchains. Um, and so, I think like Ethereum, it should be changeable but hard to change, like the constitution. And um, and it is in in blockchains though it's easier to change in the sense that um, well, if you know, it, it may be hard to do an EIP process, but um, I mean, maybe you could you could fork Ethereum, you could start your own blockchain. Now it's hard to get adoption in that case, but um, it is difficult to start a country with your own constitution. It, the barriers to entries are, are much harder than um, higher than the barriers to entry to start your own blockchain. I think um, the now protocols and DAOs that are built on blockchains inherit some of the properties of, of blockchains, but they don't need to resemble the same level of um, uh, yeah, like you know, I, 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 the, uh, in some cases they could be like unchangeable, completely immutable. In some cases they can uh, have much more flexibility. I think in you know, say lending protocols, they uh, th there should be some room for um, you know the the changing nature of of DeFi and markets um, versus yeah, may, maybe in AMM like um, yeah, maybe Uniswap V4 after you know, once if they launch it, like that is kind of a, you know, that, that maybe me, I, I don't, I don't think so, but maybe that, maybe that's it. And you, then you just need like minor upgrades on top of it. Um, but maybe that doesn't apply to, to say learning protocols, I think. Um, and so, it, yeah, it just depends on what the application is. I think, um, if you, if you do stick to a specific, um, uh, if you do stick to remaining relatively immutable where yet yeah, it's, it's possible to change, but you're having an opinion like let's say like nouns for example has uh this one auction every day forever and um uh and people bid on that that auction and um you know the, the um the, the proceeds go to the, the treasury and then is allocated to fund projects that build on nouns that's an opinion like they could maybe have 20 auctions in a day they could they could maybe have one auction every month but the protocol has an opinion, which is they're doing one auction a day forever, and that's what's that's what's said, and that's like the social consensus. There's a way to change the protocol, and you could you could really increase the auction speed or decrease it. Uh, let's say there's no demand for nouns auctions, will they make it one a month? Um, I don't know, but like it's um, it's it's more interesting when it's when it's just like sticks to one a day, and then maybe you have forks of nouns that experiment with different auction frequencies. And so I, I think um, there is something special to this community building. It, this is almost a little bit like the autonomous nature of the DAO, which is the protocol does have these rules that um, are, are, are opinionated and are specific. And, you know, there's some social consensus that it's going to just run forever. Um, and, and you have, you, it attracts this community of contributors or users uh, and builders that uh, are attracted to that particular mission um, and that, that opinion. And if people really oppose that, it, you know, that, that instantiation of the protocol, you could, of course, fork it and have your own experiments uh, to run with. To me, it's very much dependent on, on just the business you're in and, and like the business you're in kind of dictates it's where you can think like MakerDAO has two ways to go about this. Uh, you can just try to be like super decentralized and try to survive. And maybe that's the right way to become like the most important global infrastructure and an important stable coin. But the other one, which uh, force, forces you to take risk and forces you to govern things is if you want to generate yield off chain, for example, but that does give you like the advantage of capital efficiency, being able to put that uh, capital you make off chain into like on chain vaults that increases your competitiveness. So it, the good part about forking is exactly that you get to like try out every variation of this. Uh, but it, I think it depends on the business you're in a little bit where it could be where oh, the right way to go about maker from now on is to be very, very conservative, or it could be that the right now, the best way is to get all the off-chain stuff, put yield sources in and really like push the capital efficiency and make DAI more attractive to hold. And that's what wins you the game. So uh, I think like it, it very much depends on just the market forces you in, in a sense to do different things. Mika, maybe we could start to uh, get into some some tangible examples here, like moving from the, the kind of high level theoretical down into what's actually happening on the day to day. Maybe we could actually start with Maker because Maker in many ways is kind of a bellwether. So I think the first, uh, maybe you could call it like consequential DAO if you don't include something like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Can you actually just describe for, for listeners who might just kind of know what Maker is, understand what Maker the token is versus DAI, but like can you just describe Maker as an entity? Like if you were describing a business like Amazon, you say it's a shipper, right? It provides AWS, like these are its customers, this is how it makes money. Could you kind of give us an overview of 
maker and how it all works and then we can get into the governance yeah, i think for uh for the purposes of understanding it like as a business it's it's very much like a flat organization with like different parts i'm not describing like the old version of maker the new version is sort of more eccentric but uh, before that comes let's just talk about how it's been it's like a flat organization with like core units who are often responsible for like a specific thing uh, those core units are made up of like a certain number of people for example engineers and then they have like a facilitator who sort of in a way tries to answer to MKR token holders. So that's one part of the equation. The second part is uh, you have delegates uh, who basically vote uh, on everything related to money and how risk is handled within the system. So it's about uh, how budgets are allocated, how, um, how different risk parameters around debt ceilings are set. And then like there are token holders, not very many, but like token holders who have uh, delegated their tokens to these delegates who then like approve or disprove basically uh, how budgets are allocated and and how risk is managed within the system. So that's kind of the the governance structure. What what are all of those different pieces trying to achieve? Right. I, I know at a high level it's kind of the perpetuation of the stablecoin die. But what if you sort of went around and pulled all these different stakeholders within the organization? What would they say the objective is? So that's the funny and, and sort of worrying part uh, in some sense in Maker nowadays, which is that people will probably give you different answers to that question. Uh, some people are much more heavily want a certain type of growth strategy uh, and another one like another. So it can be as simple as what should the interest rates be, like how competitive should you make them in a bull market to encourage like leverage uh, from the system to all the way to the like the baseline philosophy of do you have real world assets as collateral or not? And like that's that's like a point of friction and actually probably gets you like uh, quite a bit of like different answers and ultimately it's like a democratic vote in a way of those people who or those tokens that show up uh, via delegates or themselves like the majority always kind of wins so it's like a like a democracy in that way it is kind of like a uh, like a slow moving entity in that way where you you get like decisions that are kind of you you tend to get decisions that are kind of conservative and it's good that like for example in the bull market like people didn't take like ust for example as collateral and things like that so there's been like sensible decision making so i think it is like um there's like some good parts to it but there's also some bad parts to it where also the DAO tends to like ossify around like certain people and and in practice you do tend to get like this effect where a few people are very much like sort of the key decision makers in the system and that's not necessarily bad but it's just like a reality as well. So I think there's probably like more complexity on the organization side that's kind of necessary in that way uh, relative to like what's actually being done. So it, it is kind of complicated, but it is also very cool in a way because you do have like uh, different kinds of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, like bringing new ideas to the table and, and those do have a good chance of getting implemented if they're good. So it, there's a lot of positives as well. All right, everyone, brief break in the show here to talk about our newest sponsor, Reserve. So, you know, it's looking pretty bleak out there. It's not looking that great. We know what the one thing there's no bear market in? Stable coins. Stables, baby. Stables. We love those stable coins, uh, which is why we're excited to partner with Reserve Protocol. So let's just start with the basics. What is Reserve? It's a self-service platform to build, deploy, and govern asset-backed stable coins, uh, which can be integrated with DeFi or within the real economy. So... The cool thing about Reserve is basically anyone out there, permissionlessly, can take any set of ERC-20 tokens and use them to collateralize their own stablecoin. So the long-term goal of the Reserve Protocol is to create a non-inflationary currency that is stable on a month-to-month -month basis, but also a century-to-century -century basis. In the meantime, though, they're open-sourcing design decisions for stablecoins, which is just super, super cool. I think one of the benefits that you get there is diversification. You hear it all the time in Finance 101, no such thing as a free lunch except for diversification, that's what you're getting with Reserve Protocol. Yeah, I've known the team for a long time. I spoke on a panel at SF Blockchain Week with Nevin, uh, with Joe Carlson and, and Alex Gladstein, really impressive uh, growth that they've been able to have so far, right? Their premier stablecoin is RSV. It is backed by three other stables. It's already used by over half a million people transacting over $300 million a month. Right now, like Mike was talking about, anyone can go create a custom bespoke stablecoin using the reserve protocol. You can back it by maybe specific USD stables, or you can get uh, creative and you know maybe build something more complex like inversely correlated assets. The branding, 
governance, and composition are completely up to you. And lastly, if there are any builders who are listening and you aren't interested in issuing your own stablecoin, what you can do is you can stake reserves governance token against your favorite stable strategies. So what you're doing there is you're providing backstop insurance to stablecoin holders. Not riskless, right? Not financial advice. There's definitely some risk in doing that, but it does allow you to earn yield, especially now in crypto when there are so few ways to do that. It's definitely worth checking out. So at the very least, you should click the link at the bottom of this episode. Go check out the Reserve website. See all the cool stuff they're up to. Most importantly, though, click this link. You got to give Jason and me some credit here. Show right? us some love. Uh, show us some love. Give us some love, baby. Give us some love. <laughs> all right. Now back to the show. Let's get into it. There are kind of like three large sets of stakeholders in, in Maker, right? There are the core units. Um, then there's also the delegates. And then there are kind of token holders, right? And one of the benefits, it's like one of the maybe... Uh, the cons of an organization like that is there's a lot of, uh, you know, friction sometimes and people aren't necessarily aligned on one goal. So sometimes it feels like, hey, we could be sprinting faster here if we all just got on the same page. That's what it, the goal kind of is at a startup. But on the other hand, it seems like it functions as the sort of checks and balances type system, right? Where actually moving slower can be a feature, not a bug in some instances, maybe the case of like not accepting UST as collateral is quite a good one, right? Because I would imagine that would have been very damaging to the maker protocol. So Maybe like with that particular frame of governance in mind, like let's move to another kind of base layer protocol, something like Uniswap, right? Which my understanding of Uniswap is there's Uniswap Labs, which sort of builds consumer facing products on top of the protocol. Then there's the recently formed Uniswap Foundation, which manages updates to the actual protocol. So I'd be curious, like if you take a look at these two forms of governance, like is the governance structure that Maker has necessarily applicable to Uniswap? Is it not Mixin? What, you know, could you not just copy pasta it, it over to this new protocol? And if not, why? Yeah, I think um, uh, for Uniswap, yeah, how Uniswap is so different is that it's uh, it's it, the AMMs like just by by the nature of what they are like require um, much less governance. There's just way less surface area for what token holders and what contributors should do. The main Yes. Yeah, so, so right now, how Uniswap governance structure, like there are just two things that, um, two main things that governance needs to do. One, it, it uh, can allocate the treasury. So right now it's allocated the treasury to uh, different initiatives, uh, to the you know, DeFi education fund that funds the sort of legal and, and policy initiatives for DeFi, uh, to grants programs, and then now the Uniswap Foundation. Um, and it can sort of allocate the treasury. And then two, uh, there's the, the fee switch, which is... Um, uh, Uniswap DAO can start earning revenue, and maybe once the fee switch happens, then the, it results in other questions because you have uh, a bunch of right now the Uniswap Treasury is just Uni tokens, but then if there are other assets that go to the Uniswap Treasury, then uh, then there's more room for governance because you decide what to do with those assets. Maybe there's a Treasury management question. Maybe there's a a question of um, how do you use those assets in governance about the protocols. Um, but even even in its maximum say, like there doesn't seem to be as much uh, need for for governance. And so I think the um, the goals of, of uh, um, yeah of Uniswap it should you know should it should be to attract uh, sort of um, uh, you know developers and, and front ends to bring liquidity to the protocol. Um, and uh, it's interesting because the the labs entity is is sort of building you know products on on Uniswap and is no longer kind of you know growing and maintaining the protocol. The foundation is is now taking charge of that, and so yeah, there's this question of does you know does the foundation um, just you know do minor upgrades to the protocol? Will the foundation um, you know build uh, you know, come up with with sort of new fresh innovations, and is that the right structure for to to incentivize some of the top like sort of uh, smart contract developers to um, engineer like you know major innovations in in the MM model? Uh, I mean that's yet to be seen, but I think the um, the ba the like the basic idea kind of w works fine like there's there's always questions that oh, you know uh you know swap governance is um it's kind of it's a little different from maker which is maker there's a lot going on there's a lot of different stakeholders it's quite messy uh uniswap it's more there's not much going on and i think it's a little bit of a function of uh the mm doesn't need like sort of too much yeah i think uh, just what kind of structure i would want actually for Uniswap is like the labs entity and Uniswap labs really has an incentive to grow the protocol just by the virtue of them having a lot of uni on their balance sheet and, and then being like founders of the project. And uh, I do find that the problem with like grants programs and things like that so far has been that you don't, you're not really able to produce those sort of long-term results where someone is really incentivized to build their business on top 
of Uniswap. So like the kind of ideal case you'd want actually is, okay, someone like taking the Uniswap protocol, really putting a lot of effort into building a new type of business on top of the protocol, for example, like perpetual swaps or something like that, and really making that their own thing and being able to be rewarded in uni in a way for that effort and actually becoming like a second labs entity that's on top of the protocol that does as much good for the protocol almost as the labs entity does. Like if I, I think protocols have been sort of poor at managing sort of their token table, cap table, and really incentivizing this kind of action. But that that's the kind of thing you'd ideally, I, I think to me like to see, because otherwise it's just the labs entity doing its thing and you know, stop token holders thinking whether or not it's okay to turn on the fee switch, uh, which is kind of like an uncreative, uncreative way. But, but if you could really have like another like tip of the spear pushing things forward, that's, that's the kind of outcome you'd really want. And maybe the foundation can do that. Actually a good example of a, of a second labs entity in Aave, uh, there's, um, you know, BGD labs, which, um, is consists of some core members of the, of the Aave, um, original Aave Genesis team, including the CTO who, you know, then left Aave companies and is getting funded by the DAO to work in code protocol development. And so. Yeah, there's at least one instance of, um, you know, people who have a lot of context in the protocol and who are motivated to build for it, but are getting, getting now funded by the, by the DAO because, um, yeah, it is a different approach to, you know, build products on, on the protocol versus, you know, focus on, you know, new protocol innovation. I have a question about something like that. Um, so, I mean, if you think about, again, maybe to, this is oversimplifying it, but using the analogy of like a firm or something like that, let's say like a firm wants to embark on a new area of business, right? Um, like let's say BlockWorks, you know, we've got, to use an example, you know, we were a media company, but now we've got research as well. So right now it's like, okay, we got to figure out in addition to media, how to sell, sell research. It's a little funny to kind of hear the CTO is like, oh, well, I'm going to leave Ave companies and start my own thing that leverages this. Uh, because instead of like in a firm, right, going back to coasts and reducing transaction costs, you're like, hey, it's your job. You're already employed here. Like, let's go figure out how to do this. There's no additional cost or friction. But now it's like every time there's a new thing, someone come disband from the entity, leverage, you know, what's already been built and be like, I want equity in this new thing that I'm building. Do you kind of see what I, from that lens, it might actually increase transaction costs? I think the, yeah, the, the, the reason is because, um, uh, the, the protocol is different in the sense that it's, uh, like products on protocols, like, you know, the, the like building Uniswap V3 and V4 is different from building a wallet. Right. And so I think, um, you kind of, you, you could, I like all that's equal, uh, if there were no regulatory hurdles or if there, if there were no other issues, like. I think the right structure is you have everyone in that same team uh, that's both building the, the protocol, building products in the protocols. You're thinking about both, uh, you know, um, in the same way. You either don't even have uh, equity, you just have, everyone has token ownership and there's nothing else. There's, there's no, um, you know, one equity, one token uh, sort of, uh, th that leads to, you know, different incentives. Um, that's, I think, the ideal case. There are a lot of constraints that, you know, prevent that from happening. And so th this, I think the second approach is does make sense, but which is you, um, yeah, you have, uh, people who are funded by, uh, the DAO to maintain and upgrade the protocol. Um, they can stay in the, in the labs team. Um, but, uh, but if, if the labs team is, is, uh, focusing, you know, more going forward on, uh, building products, um, that, uh, you know, that, that, that is kind of, you know, just, just different from, um, the core protocol maintenance and development, the core labs team also has has equity there's sort of a different uh you know th th there could be situations where you know the token does well and the equity doesn't do well the equity does well the token doesn't well um and and i i think you you're kind of um you're kind of having a different bet when you're getting funded by the DAO to maintain and upgrade the protocol let's talk a little bit um you know about this idea of uh value creation versus value capture in DAOs. shreyas i saw it you shared uh, an article the other day um and, and I, I thought it was quite interesting. Um, you know, basically, you know, to, to summarize for the audience, just because you create something of value doesn't necessarily mean you can capture that value, right? Like maybe the most classic example is something like a Wikipedia, right? I think I use Wikipedia a shocking amount in my day-to-day -day life, actually. Um, I do it on weekends. Sometimes I go down little Wikipedia rabbit holes and it's like very entertaining for me. Uh, I think humanity as a whole probably gets an enormous amount of use out of Wikipedia 
the effect to which that value that Wikipedia has created has been captured by the creators of it is that's where it's a little bit uh, thinner. Um, I don't know, Sharice, if you want to maybe take a take a swing at summarizing the, that this particular article, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes, but you want to take a, a swing at... Uh, yeah, I, I can uh, share so, some, some of uh, my thoughts. I've been thinking about this for, for some time, and then um, uh, Brian uh, shared a really good post, and some of it overlaps with, uh, with what he shared too. I think um, the... So, so firstly, like the, um, uh, you know, because of the nature of open source protocols and the fact that you don't have... Uh, there's a lot of things uh, that how companies capture value that is um, is driven by the fact that there's either proprietary uh, data or there's a proprietary algorithm or there's the or, or the you know sort of the source code is proprietary and um, and open source protocols you know by by default you don't have any of that uh, and so you know right now the um, yeah the main things that have you know, accrued value is that this, this, the, the main, the, the main token model that probably that makes sense right now, like that, that clearly works is, uh, Ethereum. Like I think the, um, you know, the layer one chains and like the, um, uh, the proof of stake model like that kind of makes some sense. Like it's it, it, like versus really anything else. And like, you probably have, uh, then things like maybe Aave and, and maker that fall probably in between where yeah, it's it makes more sense than say something like like Uniswap, but it still is not uh, like you know proven yet. And I think the um, so so the the few things like one uh, is this question of uh, revenue. So like let's take uh, Uniswap, right? Like Uniswap ha is is an open source protocol that has um, that you know this is all this always this debate of can can it turn on uh, fees and and you know you have the fee switch uh, that can get bring revenue to the DAO. You could do that. Um, but in reality, uh, most of the, like a lot of the, like, you know, the, the revenue can actually come from products built on top of the protocol, uh, can come from maybe payments from, from Autoflow. This is how like, you know, folks like Robinhood and other, you know, wallets and exchanges will make money. And so that is a way more sustainable um, revenue source than like maybe the fee switch, though, though, you know, the fee switch could bring quite a bit of revenue to the DAO. Uh, and also, there's this. There's always a sense that you know, if if uh, you you can't keep increasing prices because at at some point there's um there's the switching costs when you have open source protocols competing with each other is is just much lower. Um, and so I think uh, there's yeah I, I I think one idea that uh that I have is like you kind of almost want a a more unique way to capture value to these protocols, and this is like thinking a little bit out of the box here, but um, but you almost, uh, th there was a good post by someone from Nouns, um, uh, who, who, who talked about, um, NFTs, uh, as, as provenance rights. And so maybe an analogy, if you think about Uniswap, if they, let's say didn't have, um, any RC20 tokens, but instead you just had NFTs, uh, that were issued, you just had socks or, or some other NFT collection, um, or you had continuous auction NFTs, some, some, some thing that, that, uh, uh, that people could own that, that had provenance rights over the underlying protocol. Um, that maybe is interesting, which is uh, Uniswap is a culturally significant protocol and therefore, you know, people are owning these assets that, um, that, uh, you know, have this cultural significance and maybe there's demand for that. It's still an open question as to how many people would demand that, like, you know, whether that's valuable and all that, but that maybe is interesting as well, where the open source protocol itself doesn't try to you know, capture fees in the in the traditional way, but um, there's other ways that it can have uh, sort of status and provenance rights, and and in other individuals or rich people can maybe have um, some ownership over you know funding these these projects. Um, yeah, it's a it's a possibility too. But yeah, by by default, like sort of products uh, like Web two products just have a way easier. Um, value capture methodology than open source protocols. I do think sometimes we maybe over overthink the sort of value capture bit in the sense where Uniswap token holders, like Uni holders, their incentive is to maximize profit seeking from the system. Like that's that's what they would ultimately like to do. Uh, but Uniswap as a business may be one where the margins are just very small. But that's not that different from just how technology improves people's lives, you know, like your distribution and your overall like volume gets higher, but uh, you're kind of like your cut gets smaller and the efficiency of your business is like much higher. You can think like Uniswap versus New York Stock Exchange. 
like Uniswap is like the open version that the whole world can use. Maybe it becomes bigger than the New York Stock Exchange, and uh, and maybe like the cut you're able to get is not as big as the New York Stock Exchange because of like regulatory reasons, because of like forking and competitiveness. But there is like also some switching cost involved uh, on migrating that liquidity, where the liquidity on Uniswap is not that sensitive to like uh, some fee level, and you're able to like get that fee level, and that's how it ultimately plays out. Also, like these kinds of businesses, it's very hard to know. And this is like the, I think comes to the NFT point in a way what the monetization methods are ultimately and how good or bad they are because um, something like Google didn't make money until it made money, right? And, and I think a lot of these businesses kind of could be, could be similar where you can intellectualize all you want about what the Uniswap fee switch should be. But ultimately, if the product suit is really large, a lot of it gets decentralized over time. Maybe there is like some amazing value capture there over time. Uh, and that's how it just plays out. But it, it again, I think, depends a lot of the business you're in and the switching costs where, like, well, how, like, if I put it, put the fee up by whatever basis points on Uniswap, like, is the liquidity gone or not? And and if it is, like, the all the uh, exchange aggregators will uh, navigate to that, but the Uniswap front end won't. And that has, like, its own stickiness and a lot of users. So uh, I think it's the, a very, like, traditional business thinking does apply to like some like the Uniswap fee switch, for example. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, the limits to which it, it probably isn't so black. Like there, there, there aren't an enormous amount of instances of forking really that are like very successful, right? Like if you kind of look, I guess SushiSwap is like the big one that is still kind of playing out in, in real time. And like Lord knows they've gone through their, uh, you know, struggles with leadership and everything over there. But uh, but it, it, there aren't, it doesn't seem like there are that many instances of, forking purely with eliminating you know a cost and taking an enormous percentage of the user base and you know when i kind of think back to like an analogy of like i am a customer at bank of america and fidelity why because when i was in like high school you know i i got dumped into those bank institutions and even though Robinhood had no trading services for a long period of time I would, I still kept my stuff on Fidelity. Why? Because it was like kind of a pain in the ass to move everything. And I just didn't really want to do it. So I know if, you know, if it was a hundred dollars for every trade on Fidelity, I probably would have moved that, but it's five bucks a trade. And it was like, is it really worth it? So I wonder if there's some element of that within crypto as well, where there's a sensitivity barrier, maybe for four. I think that, yeah, I, I do think there's totally a, uh, like a safety, um, what's the word for it uh that that you just don't you just don't move things when you're yeah but like yeah you you kind of the b2b equivalent is you don't get fired for using ibm like i think um there's definitely that on the consumer side which is why trusted brands have a lot of value and uh and you know you don't you don't you know coinbase uh works and people don't switch from coinbase i agree with all that um i think that's at the product level though and that's different from the protocol so I think I think you want to own the end customer relationship. Then you want to have. So I do think Uniswap's like wallet or or the thing that owns the end customer relationship totally will have. You know, if it's good, if it's as good as uh, as, as Coinbase or Fidelity or Robinhood or whatever, like will have that trust with consumers and um and and can have um that that retention and if it satisfies those those needs of users, I agree. Like people are not uh you know there's very few people that are super um. Uh, you know, DeFi native and picky, but that's kind of different from the protocol because the protocol almost exists in the in the middle, right? So I think you, it's in this weird point because these these DeFi protocols on 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 the one side you have infrastructure that that's that's really costly, uh, that's hard to hard to build, but once it's built, um, it can uh, it, it's hard to displace, which is something like Ethereum. On the other side, you have things that, you know, really have the end customer relationship, um, like the Uniswap front end, probably as an example, but yeah, like wallets and, and Coinbase and things like that, that have the end customer relationship, again, is, is hard to displace because, you know, people don't like to move. And then in the middle, you have these protocols. And I think the um, these protocols have to move to one side or the other to become, you know, in in some cases, they have to vertically integrate, like DYDX is, you know, building its own chain, or they have to do both, you know, sort of vertically integrate to, you know, get build a wallet and have the end customer relationship or they have to do both um but the core again we're just talking about the core protocol like and and if you separate the protocol from the product like i think that that's where it becomes harder and you need to have like maybe some more thinking on how you actually have um uh, revenue with with strong retention 
the data point that really supports this, that these protocols can become that kind of infrastructure, I think is going to defilelama.com, look at what the top projects are by TVL. They're the same ones they always were. They're Maker, uh, Aave, Uniswap, the Curve. Lido is the new one because that's like an actually new thing that came in the new last cycle. And in the last cycle, we did pump every single incentive you'd imagine into like forking and, and subsidizing all the variations. And yet you still have this result. And you can imagine, okay, if Maker is 10 times bigger, if Aave is 10 times bigger, like it gets more difficult to job. It gets more difficult every single like dollar you add to one of these things. So that would make me think that, okay, these do have that opportunity to become like really sticky infrastructure that's actually kind of difficult to displace. I've, I've got another, you know, maybe even to dive into some of the new ones and maybe let's actually use the example of the two protocols that we've been primarily referring to this whole episode, which would be Maker and uh, Uniswap. So, you know, there was actually a, a great post uh, by Multicoin. Uh, I know they're struggling a little bit recently, but they they put out some great content. Um, and uh, and th- it was basically this idea that you know protocol like DAOs manage risk, uh, and the more that you manage risk, the more unforkable you ultimately are. So like if you take the example of something like Uniswap, right? The competitive advantage that Uniswap has is liquidity. Liquidity begets liquidity, right? So right now they've got like an enormous amount of market share. They have the most liquidity on there, tightest spreads, etc. But Ultimately, at the end of the day, you could imagine someone else is going to have the cold start problem of how do we get that liquidity. But if someone offers like tighter spreads or uh, you know lower fees, if we eventually turn on the fee spread for the unit for Uniswap, you could imagine you know really mercenary traders or liquidity providers just you know hopping over there. There's like very low switching costs. On the other hand, trying to fork something like Maker is more difficult, particularly if it goes down the route of like real world assets, because there's an enormous amount of like very technical, like underwriting of risk, right? That goes on to, that goes on in that protocol. And you can't, if you just fork it with a different set of code, you can't take all of the expertise and people that have like built up on the original protocol and just magically make it go over there. So like, do you agree with that kind of nuance? And do you think that some protocols are more susceptible to being forked than others? I do agree with that framework that like taking on, or just the business is more complex in a way where uh, it's not that, uh, Uniswap token holders are taking full risk of the Uni protocol, uh, Uniswap protocol, in a way, because like if there is some reason why um, like the ETHUSDC pair gets drained for funds with some hack, and like Uniswap holders are technically liable for that in in like the implicit way, even if they're not explicitly so, because if either they make those users whole or or like somehow they they have to ensure that the trust in the system doesn't go to zero and people in the future will trade on it and otherwise their token goes to zero right so they you, they are always taking the risk it's just that their risk is different from something like maker where the risk is more complex and and uh you where you really yeah you have like lots of these different layers that are sort of like maker for example it's it, the specifics are interesting i think where um, the stablecoin itself is kind of forkable in some ways because uh, it's just um, the denomination of your leverage. And if it's just that, it can be replaced because you can just take like another system, take out dollar loans against your ETH and be fine with that. Uh, and you have like some cost of capital competition there. But the stuff that isn't forkable uh, is if DAI is just integrated everywhere and it it's an actual stablecoin that's used for payments and in, and lots of different things. And it has a liquid market on Aave and it has trading pairs on Uniswap. That stuff doesn't makes it like less forkable. So because it's a more more complex system, has all these aspects about it. Like even Uniswap, you can think, how much is Uniswap forkable? Or maybe I should just go after the ETH USDC market and only that with incentives because that's the biggest market. And I can just try to get that one market away. Like Uniswap isn't one thing, it's all these different markets, right? And they all have their different competitive dynamics. So you can even slice that one up like in different ways and try to attack Uniswap in like lots of interesting ways. So yeah, I don't know if that answered the question, but it was like at least some rambling on run. It did answer for me. Um, guys, I, we're, we're starting to wind down here. I'd love to kind of get your, your thought of like the end game, so to speak, on DAOs. And maybe we can ultimately divide that in between like what are the, some of the improvements that you guys would like to see made, let's say, over the next like couple years? And then maybe we can zoom out to like much further down the line um, what you think. And, you know, one, one question that we've been asking a lot on this series is, 
I think if you hear the way community, the community aspect of DAOs talked about like one year ago versus today, it would be very different. Uh, where one year ago, you know, there was an enormous focus on the community and engaging them, and it was this big competitive advantage. And now I think that maybe some of the shine has come off of the last bull market. You know, people are kind of more talking a little bit, at least in the research of, of doing the show, about like you got to run every little thing by the community, which is is great. That's one of the great things about DAOs that so many people can contribute. But also, like, good decision-making is often by, like, putting fewer people in front of making decisions than more. So, like, I've sat in on a couple of – I'm thinking of this Twitter spaces that I sat in on the other night, um, you know, where I'm just watching this group get roasted. Uh, and basically, they want to RFP out every single little decision. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, man, that's pretty tough. I don't think that's necessarily the best way to do it. So I'd love to know how you think about kind of the pros and cons of, you know, each of these DAOs having this super positive – like engaged community, I suppose. Yeah, I think um, you, you'd want to separate the uh, decision making maybe into like three types of decisions. Like the first is these um, extremely big, significant decisions, like a decision to uh, deploy a protocol on another chain, a decision to, um, uh, you know, to do an upgrade from v, you know, V2 to V3, a decision to um, have some major change to say Avi's um, uh, safety module to um, yeah to, to to change the protocol in some significant way to maybe set up a you know a grants program like those type of decisions where you have on chain governance or something like that. Um, I think then on the other extreme you have uh, sort of decisions that um, like capital allocation decisions that could be much smaller and made much quicker um, uh, and be made by people with much higher context and so. Um, you know, people who uh, can make a decision on, you know, we should sort of fund this team or the service provider, and it's it's um, you know, it's not a, a ginormous, ginormous amount of the treasury, but it's it's within our budget, and and you know, we have we're like risk specialists, we have the highest context on which risk vendor to choose, uh, and then and so that I think should be made by you know, sort of either full time people in the DAO or, or high context contributors. And I think you have the middle, which is, um, yeah, something that maybe there'll be a little more innovation on, which don't fall in, in both those categories where it doesn't benefit from on-chain governance and also does, doesn't benefit from uh, a team of like, you know, five people deciding. And maybe in some cases that's like light token holder uh, involvement, may, maybe like high con like, you know, you have uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of, um, of higher context, like uh, contributors, these, these might be voters or others that, vote on some of these allocations or, um, you know, Nouns has an interesting model called Prop House where every month they um, they have a certain amount of ETH that's allocated to uh, contributors that um, that put up interesting projects that they want to fund and and, um, and uh, Nouns holders can vote on it. So some innovations in that in that mid space. But yeah, I, I think generally uh, you see either like too much of a bias in, in, in some cases uh, to the on-chain governance for everything or too much of a bias uh, towards like, you know, a, a few people um, doing everything. And I, I think you just want to contextualize which decisions need on-chain governance and, and which decisions need, um, uh, you know, a, a five-person team kind of uh, that, that has high context working on it. The community aspect to me is like both overrated and underrated. I think it's like overrated in the bull market sense of how many people you have on Discord, like being excited, pumping the project. but. If you think, for example, like from MakerDAO's perspective, an important part of the community, like I think the protocol and token holders there should set risk limits on what uh, people can build on top and, and let, but let those people like flourish. And that's the real community. So Centrifuge is like the real important community for MakerDAO because they're uh, like interfacing with the MakerDAO protocols, bringing real world like finance to it. Uh, and they're like, a, they're an important community contributor really. And, and you want to, give those people a great opportunity to build their business on top of this. And you at the protocol level are making sure that you're taking intelligent risks uh, with regards to how much like leeway you give them. But it, it, that kind of community to me is very important that you want to see. And I think like, for example, all the uh, Gauntlet and, and Lama and others who work on Ovid, that's part of, that's the important part of the community because they're like actually really contributing and being in there and, and making like their business, but also like uh, Ave, for example, as a business better. So that's the kind of, community framing that I like more than, than sort of the number of people on Discord anyway. Maybe like zooming out uh, almost like to sort of an annoying degree, right? Like the vast majority of people today are employed by traditional startups or corporations or, you know, whatever the, um, you know, companies, uh, 
you know, across the world. You know, do you see a future, let's say 20, 30, 50 years from now, where it's more split and maybe half people like kind of contribute in a sort of part-time manner to these DAOs? Do you think people continue to work in companies, but many people contribute to DAOs on the side? Like, how do you think ultimately the balance of, of work ends up balancing out here? I think the, the 40, 50 question is how to answer. I'd say the, um, yeah, over the next f five or 10 years, um, I think, I think the, um, number of people that contribute to protocols and DAOs will increase quite a bit, but I don't think that will compare to, you know, the number of people working at Google or Facebook. Um, I think the, it's, it's just much more so that you'll have, um, uh, people who you, you'll have many, many more people that, um, can on a, a full-time income, um, contributing to protocols. I, I think the, the, there's especially like a, a subset of, of, you know, highly skilled workers, whether on, on the, um, uh, sort of uh, programming side or the um, uh, or the risk side or the DeFi financial side that will have you know uh, doors open up like right now it's it's extremely hard to contribute directly to one of these protocols but it'll become uh, easier to various other organizations or or there'll be structures of these DAOs that make it easier um, and so I think that number will increase uh, it's hard to put what what that number will be because it, it's kind of contention on like um, uh, just you know how, how many protocols there are and, and um, how big that grows, but um, yeah, I think it will be several, several, you know, multiples of what it is uh, today in the next five or ten years. But yeah, I also don't think it's yeah you know, the these protocols don't require like um, it, you you, you kind of have this bifurcation of of people right, but you don't have um, you don't need like a five thousand person of you know full time uh, group of what you know working for Uniswap protocol or Aave, right? That's just not how it works. It's, it's just much more you have these smaller units of individuals and contributors that uh, can contact team and, and contribute to, some, to, to a few protocols. Maybe they, they focus on lending protocols and they have some expertise that carries over. Maybe they work for service providers that work for DAOs. Um, uh, and you'll have like maybe a, a, a bridge too, which is you have a, a little more of, of, the, um, of the traditional entities as well engaging with DAOs and, and there's... Um, there's ways that people contribute maybe more indirectly. I agree with that a lot. Maybe my answer is, is fun one related to that, but I would imagine there are like these stories of, I think there's like at one point, one dude who was uh, working on like a very important SSL infrastructure that the whole world used. And if that guy had like died, well, who knows what would have happened. I'm not sure if that story is entirely true, but directionally, those are the kind of cases. And you can think how many core contributors does Bitcoin have? It's like very few. But Coinbase has a lot, right? So the businesses on top that uh, that build, the, and uh, I think ultimately a lot of these protocols will end up in a similar situation where it's just a one guy saving SSL kind of situation. Uh, but then on top, because more and more, hopefully, if any of this works, more and more businesses will interface with blockchain. Just means that those companies will have a lot of people, and but the core protocols themselves don't. So maybe that's a fun answer for twenty years from now. And yeah, Mika's fine. Uh, made me think of there's a book uh, by Nadia Ekbal called um, "Working in Public." It's on the maintenance of open source software, where uh, she actually talks about how different um, founders of open source uh, projects uh, said that when the when the project got a lot of attention and everyone wanted to contribute, um, it was actually it actually was annoying for the for the founders because uh, they the quality of contributions really reduced, and they have to now deal with management and maintenance of all these people um and so there's a there's a fine line between what you you want like high quality contributions but you don't necessarily need like a thousand people uh you know trying to um uh, sort of comment on on improvements of your staking contract or something i think it's it's that's suitable for certain types of contributions maybe like bug bounties in crypto have that place for like a marketplace if if you know like really any number of people can come and spot a bug but that's a very organized uh, sort of situation where people can contribute for high context contributions. It's just very few people can actually drive, um, you know, value to a protocol. Yeah, I actually, um, you know, we, I mean, we, we found this, this was a, I actually, one of our employees gave me this feedback one time and it was a, it was a transformative bit of advice, which was we were arguing about something a while ago. It's like a design decision or something like that. And something was weighing in, someone was weighing in that shouldn't have been, trying to mediate this uh, this disagreement and you know the the advice that was given to me is like well people basically not everyone should weigh in on every decision because that actually makes it 
much worse, right? The people that have expertise on a specific decision, they should be given more autonomy. And then on the margin, you'll make better decisions going forward. So I kind of keep that in the back of my, my head as well, that actually oftentimes if you want good decisions being made as a leader, you, you want to try to find out like who, you know, who should ultimately have authority and say, and how can we actually limit the amount of influence occasionally on decisions and, and such. But um, guys, uh, we're, we're nearing the end of our time here. You guys have been super generous. I you know, really enjoyed this, uh, this episode. If people want to find out more about like your work or follow you or, or whatever, like what's the best way to either get in contact or, or follow you guys? Uh, yeah, enjoyed the chat. Uh, I'm uh, Hello Shreyas on Twitter, H-E-L-L-O-S-H-R-E-Y-A-S. And um, I'm a uh, co-founder at Llama. Uh, so we're at Llama on, on Twitter or Llama.xyz where you could um, follow our work. And uh, yeah, we contribute a lot to, to protocols and DAOs. So yeah, if, if people um, have any uh, thoughts or questions on some of these ideas, we'd love to chat with them. Um, I'm at M. Hongasalo on Twitter and I write a mediocre Substack as well at mhongasalo.substack.com. So feel free to subscribe and enjoy that. It's a good Substack. You're being modest, Mika. Um, all right, guys, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks very much. We'll have to do it again sometime soon.